as most, if not all of you know, last week Tim set the scene for this six-week sermon series on the letter of Paul to the Philippians entitled The Letter of Joy. And as he encouraged you earlier, if you weren't able to hear his sermon last week, then may I encourage you to do so to access the recorded version or ask for a copy of it. His theme for week one was joy in the gospel, and mine today is joy in Jesus. Paul's letter to the Philippians has been described as the letter of joy. But as Tim pointed out to us last week, joy is not happiness. Happiness is essentially about ourselves. It's about me often looking for what makes me happy and avoiding what makes me unhappy. You might say it's a bit of a potluck. Joy, on the other hand, stems from my relationship with God in whom I trust for my life. As Paul affirms in his letters to the, to the Galatians, we remember that joy is the fruit of the Spirit. Sometimes I wonder where the joy comes from, but I know that I have joy when I'm close to God through the Spirit. Sometimes happiness and sadness are two sides of the same coin, and we hope that the happiness side comes up when the coin is tossed. But the laws of probability tell us that the two sides have the same chance of coming up, unless, of course, the coin has been tampered with. Joy, on the other hand, is not subject to probability rules, because we can always have joy, albeit that sometimes it's linked to pain or cost. Now, that might sound contradictory, but we have our example in Jesus himself from Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Jesus, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And as Jesus says to his disciples in John 16 and verse 22, So you have pain now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. What a promise. If you would indulge me for a moment, perhaps I can illustrate this from one of uh, my own experiences. You might find that it triggers an example from your experience too, and it would be lovely to share that with you after the service if you wish. When my husband Michael died, it was completely unexpected. I woke up one Saturday morning in late May and found that he had died in his sleep. Family, friends and colleagues rallied around and were wonderfully kind and supportive. Many of them, my colleagues in particular, were quick to tell me not to worry about taking services because others would step in. I was booked in for a double baptism in one of my churches the next day, which meant that finding a priest to conduct it in in my place. Someone offered, 
at the expense of that priest's congregation who would, as a result of his offer, have no communion that day. This was a sacrifice that they were happy to make in the circumstances and for which I am grateful. But it so happened that I also had a wedding booked in for two weeks later in June. I told people that I wanted to do things which would give me pleasure. So there was no need to find another priest to conduct the wedding. It turned out that it no no, it turned out that it not only gave me pleasure, pleasure, but in fact it gave me joy in time of pain and bereavement. And why? Well, because joy, our joy, is in Jesus. We can trust in joy, even in pain, because we trust in Jesus. With that in mind, let's go back to Paul and his letter to the Philippians. Last week, we heard that Paul was unsure whether he would die in prison or live long enough to be able to visit the Philippian Christians. Death would mean being with the king, as he puts it, but also end his loving support of the Christian brothers and sisters in the city. Joy and pain juxtaposed again. In the meantime, he would continue to write and encouragement and encourage them as they share in their joy in the gospel. He commissions them to have confidence in the joy of the gospel and gives good advice to make this effective. But what then is required of them? Philippians 1, 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is not Paul ticking them off. Rather, it is but a warning that they are to succeed in the proclamation of the gospel and win more people for Christ, a phrase we often use today. In order to do that, they have to be better than their opponents. And the way to be better than the opposition is to behave in a manner which is neither contradictory or dismisses the truth, purpose and the love of and in the gospel. Paul urges them to stand firm in one spirit, striving together. None of those words are superfluous. Stand firm in one spirit, striving together. This is a reminder both to the first century Christians in Philippi to stand together in what is said and done, to speak truth to power and not to be frightened of by the opposition. We share that same stance in facing those who would seek to vilify and punish Christians. I'm sure we all accept that the behaviour of some Christians in the past has been appalling, to say the least. And given yet another story of abuse coming out again in the sole survivor uh, community, we have not exactly covered ourselves in roses. 
But that doesn't mean we give up. Quite the opposite. We strive to be better ministers and sharers of the gospel in all situations. There will always be mischief makers, conspiracy theorists, Holocaust and climate change deniers, as well as the plain, dishonest, manipulative person. All of them seek power and benefit for themselves at the expense of the innocent and vulnerable. And when I say this, it's not just individuals or small groups of people. It's corporations, institutions and nations. I believe we should name it and call it out. We may fear vilification from these opponents, as do the people of Ukraine living in fear of what new tactic President Putin will come up with next, especially given the news this morning. Paul's view is that the signs of persecution of those who are followers of the way is an indicator of the persecutor's own downfall. We have Christ and truth on our side and together they are greater than these opponents could ever be. However, this poses a challenge which we cannot ignore and we may, um, may well require courage to pursue it. The expression misconduct in a public office sounds terribly posh. Basically, it's people who are naughty. But it's one with which we have sadly become very familiar for weeks and months, and some would rightly say, and years, we've heard denial and lives from powerful people who should know better. Across the world, we continue to hear lies from politicians, ministers, and other voices all trying to save themselves. We've heard people being economic with the truth, another rather posh-sounding saying, which means we're telling lies. And in our own country, contradiction about who should and should not be considered for receiving an honour. Where is the honour in any of this? We, as professed, professed Christians, must make sure that we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, for therein lies the joy in Jesus we are privileged to be offered. How then might we achieve this? Paul's answer is, unsurprisingly, a simple one. Be like Jesus himself. In other words, imitate him. Philippians 2. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. This advice 
is, again, not a ticking off, but a positive way of responding to the world's attitude of selfishness and pride. In the 15th century, Thomas Akempis wrote this in his devotional book of the imitation of Christ. He that followeth me walketh not in darkness, saith the Lord. These are the words of Christ by which we are admonished how we ought to imitate his life and manners. If we will be truly enlightened and be delivered from all blindness of heart, let therefore our chief endeavour be to meditate upon the life of Jesus Christ. When I was a young Christian, young in the faith, that is, rather than in years, a much more experienced Christian told me that for her, the word joy meant Jesus first, others second, yourself last. Forty years on, I find this still very helpful, albeit it may seem simplistic. It speaks of our need to practice humility and selflessness and always to reference Jesus in our thoughts, prayers and actions before we do anything. Such adherence to it, in my experience, has indeed brought me joy in Jesus. So, might I commend to you J-O-Y in capital letters to you. And if we're in any doubt as to what it means to have the same mind in us that was in Christ Jesus, we have only to read Paul's description of him in verses 6 to 11 of chapter 2. Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to, by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is what it means to have joy in Jesus And it is indeed the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen.